So what are some things that we've learned this year about ourselves? Probably some things we shouldn't be surprised by. Maybe some things we've learned about what other people um, have been doing this past year. One thing I've seen and learned is people really care about toilet paper. Okay, we've seen that this year. Okay. Uh, we've also seen that many of our meetings could really have been done simply by an email. We've also learned that this year. We've also learned that families living under the same roof, sometimes they need space. Have we learned that? Yes, we've learned that. There's times that we need to close the door and get away from our families at times. We've also learned that loneliness hurts. It's been very hard for people to be alone. We've also learned that death is real and no one is immune from it. We've been forced this year to see what is important. It's hard for us in a very busy and self-focused culture to see some of these things, but the pandemic has shaken us. Some of us have been surprised at what should have been obvious. Our love for family, the need for silence, the need for investing in what is important and what is not. The hope is that Easter might do the same thing. It might show us what is truly important and strip those other things away. Sadly, that's sometimes not the case on Easter morning. This is our Super Bowl, right? We pull out all the stops. I wear a tie for the one time a year. The music is amazing. We put our best foot forward as the church. The sermon is supposed to be the best it ever is. The thing is, when we dress it up, many times we miss what is the core of the message. And if we just talk about what Easter is really about, sometimes it can surprise us. So let's go back to the basics, shall we? This passage will bring us back to the basics this morning. And there's three things we're going to see in this passage this morning. One, the boldness of its pronouncement, the Easter message. Second, the strong reaction to the Easter message. And third, the way the Easter message transforms its adherers. So let's look together, shall we? The scripture this morning, Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. I'm going to give a call and response at the end. It's a little different than our usual one, so make sure you look today at this one in Acts 7 and respond to what it says there. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. For just joining us, welcome. This is the second to last message in the book of Acts that we've been going through this winter and this spring. Acts is documenting the rise of this gospel message, of this community, the church, over a 30-year period of time. And some of you might say, well, you would think he would, you might take a break from Acts to maybe concentrate on a resurrection passage, considering it's Easter. Well, I think this passage fits Easter very well. You might not know this, but we believe here, we believe the Bible teaches this at Emmaus Road, that from beginning to end, the Word of God is talking about God's reconciliation of the world to Him and how He does that through Jesus Christ. Even from Genesis where it says, from the seed of the woman will come one that will crush the head of the serpent. That is talking about Christ to the end of the book when we talk about Christ's return. This book is talking about God's redemption plan for the world, the gospel through Jesus. So really every passage is an Easter passage telling the gospel. Acts does this too in the sense that it follows a similar pattern of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John follow this pattern. Jesus comes on the scene. He gains more and more followers and as more and more follow him, the persecution against him also grows until the point where there's a trial and then a death and then resurrection or new life. Acts follows this same pattern three times. One, the message starts here in Jerusalem. More and more people, as we've seen, have come to know Jesus. More and more are following him. And as that increases, so does persecution against the church to the point where people are put in jail and then to the ultimate level where it kind of breaks here in Acts chapter 7 where one of them, Stephen, is put to death. And then it resets new life. Now the gospel spreads to Samaria. And then it goes out through Samaria until James dies. And then the message goes out again to all of the Roman Empire. And that increases and there's more persecution until the end of the book where we see Paul persecuted more and more. You see, this is the same pattern of the Gospels. And that is, shouldn't be far away because that's what Jesus said would happen to his disciples. You will face the same persecution that I have. You will experience similar suffering in trials. And even here we see death. And in this passage, we see the similar language that Jesus had on his way to the cross. And on the cross is actually reiterated through Stephen. And that makes sense. Because Stephen knew what was coming. And that is the beauty of the early church. They were not surprised. 
They were prepared for the persecution and suffering they knew that would come their way. This is a good reminder for us that Christ has promised His church you will face suffering in trials in this age. I find it very perplexing that that's something that Jesus has promised to us, but we seem to ignore or be surprised at. He promised there would be suffering and tribulation. But it seems that message doesn't sell very well in American culture. Instead, we tend to emphasize that Christ will bless us with things and give us things. Christ does say he will bless us, but what he talks about more clearly is our suffering versus our blessings on this earth. Maybe that should be emphasized more in the church today. Well, where has Stephen left us? Well, he's left us with a very long speech, the longest speech in the book of Acts. And he is being tried in front of 71 individuals, the council, the Sanhedrin. And he has been stand, standing accused. And these Sanhedrin, usually the picture of the Sanhedrin, is a picture of them standing and accusing those in the court. And here what Stephen does, after he is accused by this court, he gives his rebuttal and his speech. And he gives them their history. His history too. That Israel has a tendency to reject the prophets and the messages that come to them from God. And then Stephen says, you have done the same thing with Jesus, the great prophet. And you have killed him. This makes them very upset. And you can see here that they are gritting their teeth. That they are enraged. The actual Greek word is their heart is torn in two. They are upset that Stephen has turned the tables on them. That they have accused him. Now he accuses them. But this is the most interesting thing, I think. That this doesn't make them fully enraged to kill him yet. It, what comes next that Stephen says that enrages them enough to pick up stones drag him out, and kill him. So what does Stephen actually say? Well, we see that Stephen sees something. Sees something in heaven. Many times when we read this passage, we are thinking too far ahead that he's already outside of the temple courts, that he is in the place where he's outside, he's able to see the heavens. But no, he's probably inside. So even inside, he's able to see God and see what the Lord is doing. This is the only time outside of the Gospels that Jesus is mentioned as the Son of Man. And this is what Stephen sees. He sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This title, Son of Man, is used quite often. Jesus uses it as a title for himself. In fact, it's what got him in trouble when he was in front of the priest before his execution. 
when he called himself the Son of Man, they called him blasphemous in the book of Mark, and they called for his execution. Why would this cause such a visceral reaction? Well, because the Son of Man simply isn't a title meaning a man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's a position that is going to be given to one, where all the authority of humanity would be given to someone. And it says that worldwide worship would be given to this person. And this person would receive everlasting dominion. Quite a title that Jesus gives for himself. And now here Stephen continues this message. He gives this Galilean carpenter, this Jesus that was crucified by the Jews and the Romans. He gives him the title, Son of Man. And saying that this one that has dominion over all is interceding right now for him. In most cases where we hear about Jesus next to the Father, he is sitting. But here we have Jesus is standing next to the Father. This isn't just by happenstance, I don't believe. No, I think what's happening here is there is a comparison between the Sanhedrin who is standing accusing Stephen, and now Stephen is seeing that there is one that is his ultimate judge that is standing to defend him in heaven. While they might call him guilty, while they might be sneering, while they might be gritting his teeth, there is one that has full dominion, full power, that everyone should worship, that really matters where the verdict comes from. And this is what he sees, Christ standing being his advocate in heaven. And what a cut against the Sanhedrin, who thinks God dwells simply in the temple. No, Stephen says he's interceding right now. This is a bold proclamation about Jesus. Stephen is saying, this is the risen Christ. He is the Son of Man. He is ascended. He is everlasting. He is interceding for his children over any earthly power. You know, I found it very fascinating how my conversations go about Christianity with people. Maybe how maybe my conversation might go with you about Christianity. Usually when faith starts getting brought up or Christianity gets brought up, usually it goes to politics or sexual ethics or morality. Hear me, I love talking about those topics. I used to be in politics, so I can talk about politics till I'm blue in the face. But the thing is, I think these positions when they are talked about and you say something about these positions people just decide whether they're going to listen to the christian message or not and when these are the starting places for the gospel they lose the main message of christianity and one thing i often say maybe you've heard me say this before is that when people are starting to talk to me about Christianity and wanting to know my positions on these issues, 
I say, actually, the gospel message at its core is much more bold and controversial than any of my positions on these issues. As Christians, we believe that God came to earth as the God-man, Jesus, lived a perfect life, died, rose from the dead, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That is a crazy position. Insane. And you wonder about what I think about sexual ethics and politics. I believe someone rose from the dead and is right now judging all of humanity and interceding for us. But here's the thing. When religion gets brought up, for people it's simply some spiritual aura, some self-help mantra, some you-do-you. No, what we are saying right now today on Easter, and hopefully we say every Sunday, is that it is a historical reality that happened 2,000 years ago. That a man died on the cross and rose from the dead. It's a reality we have to deal with. This is our jam. This is what we believe. There's no going to some classes where you pay money and we unveil the curtain and we tell you what the gospel is all about. There's no 1-800 number you have to call or 1-900 number where you have to pay money to hear what it is, what we really believe. There isn't some retreat you have to go to to finally get what we believe as the church. Here it is, right now, clear, and we will say it and pronounce it boldly every week. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for your sins. There it is, clear, simple. And this one deserves to be worshipped and followed. He is one that is worthy to dedicate our life to. Because he is the son of man. We should not be surprised by the boldness of the Easter message. At the same time, we should not be surprised by people's reaction to it. Just picture this with me. Here are these esteemed men of Israel, the leaders of Israel, who are putting their fingers in their ears and yelling out loud so they cannot hear what Stephen is saying. That's a seven-year-old reaction to things. But that's exactly what Stephen said they would do. 
You have uncircumcised hearts and ears. You will not even hear the message. The Romans had outlawed Jewish executions. That's why we have the cross. That's a Roman form of execution. Stoning is a Jewish form of execution. And it had been outlawed by the Romans. But that did not stop them. Right here, after he says this, we see the trial is over. The mob has taken control. He has been taken out of the temple. And now he has stones being thrown on him. And it's such a vivid picture that these individuals have to take off their garments so they can get more dexterity to pick up stones to kill Stephen. That is the picture. They're so angry, I don't want this to hinder me from picking up something big and killing this man. How does this happen? How does such a reaction like that happen? From just Stephen saying, this is the Son of Man, interceding, standing at the right hand of God. It's because Stephen is challenging their systems, their foundations, their structures, their religious autonomy, their temple. Do not take our construction of God away, they are saying, even though Stephen is talking about what God has truly revealed to them. They would rather live in their own structure rather than what God has actually done. Don't make me bow to him. Don't let, me, let him be my authority. Don't make me have to surrender my life to the Son of Man, to Jesus, to a Galilean carpenter. Are we surprised by harsh reactions? Take candy away from a five-year-old. If they were your height and your build, they'd probably beat you down, wouldn't they? Take a phone away from a teenager. If they were a lawyer, they would win against you every day in court, wouldn't they? Take a remote away from dad on a Sunday afternoon. And you'll hear whining like you've never heard before. Now accentuate that. Tell someone you should surrender all of your life to Jesus Christ. What do you think the reaction is? What is your reaction? You have no right to tell me how to live. You have no right to do this in my life or that in my life. How dare you? But could the one who gave his very body for you who created the whole world, even your life, could he have the right to tell us what to do with our bodies? Who we can sleep with and who we should not sleep with. What gender he created us and what gender he did not create us. Could the one that created us have the right to do that in our lives? 
Could the one who died for his enemies, us, call us to love and forgive those that hurt us? That are different than us? That speak ill of us? Let me anticipate your objections, shall I? That's how the church starts to control us. That's their tactics. That's what they do to just pull the strings and make us live the way they want us to live. Hear me. Christ is the head of the church, not me, not the elders. And the way that he can cut to us will be greater than anything I can say, anything that Perry can say, anything that Mark can say, anything that David can say. Christ challenges all of us, and it does not stop when we become Christians. He asks us to give up everything for him. Do you think I want to spend three weeks by myself in the presence of God? Sure, maybe for the first few days, it'd be nice to get away from everyone for a little while. But after a while, it's a thing. God wants to do business with us. And he is not done with me. He wants me to sit and listen and hear from him. And he wants to do the same for you. Will you let him do it? Will you actually take the time to take this out of your ears and listen to him in areas of your life where you refuse to surrender? And maybe after all the noise and all your clenching saying, God, I want to be able to sleep with this person. I want to be able to have my money for this. I want to be mad at this person. I want to be mad at this politics. I want to be mad at this. And we are clenching and we are clenching. And God is saying, let go and surrender to the one that has authority and dominion over all things. And if you would release, I will give you real freedom. Especially after this year, I know we're mad. I know. I know some of you are wearing masks right now and you are pissed. God wants to work on us. Are we surprised? Are we surprised by the boldness of the Easter message? Are we surprised to the strong reaction to it and how it trans and then are we going to be surprised how it transforms us? It's adheres. And that's what we see with this individual Stephen. Here Stephen repeats a lot of what we see in the passion narrative in Luke. We see Jesus said Father, I give my spirit to you here. We see that Stephen does the same, receive my spirit. We see Jesus cries out on the cross. Here we see Stephen cries out. We see Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
We see Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We see that Stephen is following in his Savior's footsteps. But as much as there are similarities, there are some major differences. One, Jesus calls out to his Father, and here Stephen calls out to the Lord Jesus. If anyone argues that the early church developed a high Christology, that it just took time for them to say that Jesus was God, they're not hearing what's being said here. Here, Stephen is giving a great, I mean, elevation of who Jesus is, that he is his interceder. He is the one working. He is the one that receives the Spirit. This is a high Christology and elevation of, God, of Jesus, that he is God himself. Another major difference is this, and it might seem very obvious, but Stephen is not God. Jesus is. And Jesus on the cross, while he experienced something greater than any of us can experience in the sense of taking all the sin of the world, he still was perfect and knew God's plan. Stephen here is a sinner. He is not God. He does not know the full plan and how this is all working out. But in the midst of that, he still has the strength to take this and say, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. How does that happen? How does Stephen have the power to do this? It should not surprise us that there is power in living in the light of the resurrection. So it's not simply that Jesus conquered death, that he conquered death for all of us, and now Stephen is living in that reality. And now Stephen is also living in the reality that Jesus is interceding for him right now. And that because he has the Spirit inside of him, the Spirit has united him with Christ and his resurrection. And because he is united with Christ, he has the power to forgive his accusers and also the power to look at death in the face and know that one day he will be united with Christ in glory and that death is not the end, but he is just sleeping until Christ will return again. There's been quite a lot of chatter in the church about our current cultural moment and what we should do. I'm going to give two positions that I've heard lately and then give you a third. One is this. We need, as the church, to step back. We need to build some walls around us. We need to regroup. We need to let the culture be the culture. And we should just be the church. Kind of a retreat message. On the other side, 
People are saying this is a good time to arm ourselves as the church, both figuratively and literally. We should fight fire with fire. They use politics in that way, we will. They arm themselves, we will. What strategy does Stephen give us? In a greater time of stress for the church. Stephen defended and armed himself with something greater than walls and guns. He armed himself with the power of the resurrected Christ. Stephen didn't say, how dare you do this to me? Safety, safety, I'm a victim, give me my rights. Stephen didn't say, Christians, do you see what's happening? Rally to me and let's take this city. We can form a better mob. No, instead, Stephen, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Would your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers, would they be surprised what flows from you in suffering and in struggling and cultural pressure? Is it bitterness? I can't believe what I've had to deal with this past year. About sickness or health or whatever you might be dealing with. Like I can't believe. Just bitterness just takes hold of you and that's what you're living in. It's what your family sees. It's your friends see. It's what your neighbors see. Or is it anger? What venomous things that come from your mouth about certain people? Or maybe even your heart, how you feel about others. How you might want to take them down. How you want to give them a piece of your mind. Or would your friends and your neighbors and your spouse or your kids, would they be pleasantly surprised? To know that you have in heaven a Christ that stands as your advocate next to the Father. And you live in his strength to be able to love your neighbor, to be able to forgive your coworker, to have gentleness towards your kids, to have self-control towards your spouse. Would we be surprised to see that is what is in you? You see, are we surprised by the boldness of this message? Are we surprised by the reaction to this message? Are we surprised by the message that lives in you?
I hope not. 